Hebrews chapter 12. We are reading verses 18 through 28. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that, at that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word this morning, we do look to you with dependence. We ask that you would send out your light and your truth and that they would lead us into all understanding. We confess that it is only in your light that we see and know light. So speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. If you have a Bible available, you may turn and follow with us in Psalm 122, this summer we are following through the Songs of Ascent. If you've not been with us, these were the pilgrim songs, the travel songs for Israel as they went up to the pilgrimage, the three annual pilgrimage, and the Psalms of Ascent were sung and rehearsed and said, repeating values and the significance of faith for the life of the people of God. And so today we find ourselves in Psalm 122. Recently, one of the children of Christ Church protested their family's attendance at worship to their dad. The father, seizing on the opportunity, asked, Why don't you like church? The son answered, I do. But there's this point in the middle of the service where the pastor talks for like 30 minutes. <laughs> the dad answered, Buddy, that's the sermon. He said, I know, but it's so boring. And when we're honest, all of us at different points in our lives have been thoroughly underwhelmed by our experiences in worship. We've had our critiques of the liturgy or of the pastor, we can be honest. We've experienced seasons in which God feels far off. We've known Sundays where we didn't want to attend because we were going to encounter so-and-so and we weren't ready to see them. Sometimes, just brunch has seemed more appealing and refreshing than going to church. Whatever the case, we've been there. We know what it is to be uninspired. We know what it is to be demotivated to engage in worship. 
And then we meet Psalm 122, and it begins like this. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. And in any of those periods of demotivation, these are perhaps the most convicting words. Because the very thing we know that we need, we feel so far off from, and we don't quite know how to cross that space and that gap. How do I get myself back into that desire? And so Psalm 122 speaks to us of the ideal. That is, of what we aspire to as pilgrims on the way. And to counter our fickleness and to counter our unfaithfulness in worship, the psalm speaks to us of what we have the privilege to seek after in worship. And there's four things that we'll briefly look at in these privileges this morning. The first is that we seek after God, who is presented as a refuge for us. If you follow in verse 3, Jerusalem, built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up. This is a statement of the significance of the city of Jerusalem in the Old Testament. It was the holy city in which God sat enthroned in the temple. It was a city with walls and ramparts and towers that protected it and guarded it. And those walls and towers are what the psalmist speaks of when he says it's built as a city that is bound firmly together. The image is one of security and safety, that the city was a safe refuge. And when we look throughout the Psalms, when we find this notion of the security and safety of the city, it is because God is ultimately the refuge that protects and hides and covers the people of God. And so this, these walls are a visible symbol that were to draw Israel to their trust and to their ultimate security that was found in God. And we're being directed here to the one sure and true refuge that we have. That our refuge is not found in any earthly strength. That our help is in the name of the Lord our God, as we saw last week in Psalm 121. That God is a strong shelter. That he's a protector, a defender, and a shield. That he shades us by day and by night, constantly watching over us. And we learn and learn to experience God as this refuge because we know him who is the one who is a refuge for us as sinners. That is, when we have come up short of what we aspire to and what God commands, we know that he freely receives us, that there is the blood of Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant that we read about in Hebrews chapter 12, that he's the one who atones for our sins and forgives us, and that our God once again and again receives us as we acknowledge those sins and comes to him. He's a refuge for sinners. He's also a refuge for the weary, that is that when we experience the weight of our broken and tired world, and we know that weight across our relationships, perhaps across our homes or our workplaces, when we experience that weight and it gives us a certain sense of exhaustion, God promises to be a refuge for the weary. He's also a refuge for the wounded, those who have been stripped of power and taken advantage of by those in position. He promises throughout the Psalms to be a refuge for those in that position. He's a refuge also for those who suffer. That is that our bodies groan beneath the curse of sin and death. And the sicknesses and the frailties we experience, God promises to be a refuge for us in every season of life. He promises to be a refuge for the troubled, those who know the uncertainty of life and do not know what the next day holds for them. 
God promises that whatever that day holds, he will be present. He's also a refuge for the weak. That is, when we don't find the strength ourselves to fulfill his commands. That he's a refuge for us, that we can look to him, that we can turn to him in faith. He will give us everything that we need to walk with him. And he's also promised to be a refuge for the despondent. That is, in all the theological knowledge we may have, when we simply don't feel like responding to God and we feel distant from him, he says that we can come to him. These are all the ways that the Psalms speak of God as a refuge. And this is the God that we seek after. That in all the various circumstances of our life, that he is a well-built refuge who's strong and true and sure, and he will never fail you. And this is what we must be reminded of. Sunday by Sunday, this is the God we come to. He is present and he is sure and he's true. And let that minister back against our fickleness and our own unfaithfulness. That our God is true and certainly here and eager to meet with us as we look to him. Now the second piece to this is that we seek, after, we seek to offer thanks to God. This is what we are commanded to actually do in verse 4. To which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed or commanded for Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Thanksgiving is commanded. We are told what we ought to do. That we are to give thanks to God because of what he's done on our behalf. Now Thanksgiving in the community of Israel always possessed two aspects to it. That is that there was a spiritual aspect to it in which we rendered the praise of our hearts with our tongues to God for what he had done for us, for all the provisions for us in creation, for all the provisions for us in salvation, and for all the promised provisions in new creation. That there was to be a spiritual thanksgiving arising from the heart, expressing itself in song and in obedience. But then there was also a material expression of thanksgiving. If you look in Deuteronomy 16, in verses 16 and 17, what we find there is the prescription for these three pilgrimages every year. And they set a template for us in helping us understand what the weekly pilgrimage to the heavenly city of Jerusalem holds for us. And that is that we are to offer our thanks to God in song and obedience and profession and vows. But also there's to be a material side to our thanksgiving. God commands the Israelites that they're never to come empty-handed before him. That is, from everything that he's given, we're to respond and to give to him. That everything we have is seen and understood to be from him. And therefore, what we return to him already belong to him. And we're recognizing that and sanctifying what he's given to us. And so there is the spiritual and material thanksgiving that is to be at the center of this engagement with God, in which we experience what it is to be a creature before God, needy and dependent, in which we experience what it is to be a sinner by God, saved by grace, dependent upon that mercy, and what it means to be one who looks forward to the future, who knows the world's one hope for salvation lies in Jesus, in which he returns to free the world from all its pollution, corruption, and stain. One of the practical questions for us, though, as we hear that command to give thanks, is how do we align our hearts with it, though? Because we know these things of what God has done for us in creation. We hear the things that God has done for us in salvation. We hear the things that God will do for us. But at times, we are just flat dull. 
and we feel dead to it. We want to know how do we align our hearts with these great truths in order to get back to that place of thanksgiving. The first word of the psalm is instructive for us. It's the verb in the original language, glad. I was glad. But why particularly is the psalmist so glad? We must remember that Psalm 122 is the third in these series of hymns, and they were put together in a particular order for specific reasons. But the gladness and the rejoicing of the psalmist, why he is ready to give thanks to God, is related to what's happened prior to this. In Psalm 120, we read of the psalmist living in times of deceit. That is the deceit that we experience in our interpersonal relationships, where people tell us lies to manipulate. And that's the deceit that we experience on the social level, in which there's spin and the misuse of information, in which we are led to believe and to think things that are not exactly true. And then we also saw that there is the more cosmic level of deceit that goes on across our world, in which we are asked to buy into the lie, the belief that life is found outside of God, that Jesus Christ is not the one source and significance of life, the one source of living water that can sustain us, that we live in that world. And then in Psalm 121, we discover that we live in a world where there's trouble, As the psalmist looks to the hills, he only sees trouble. That there's uncertainty in the hills. That's where the thieves and the thugs lived. And also on those hills were the empty promises of the false gods. And so we know that there's tremendous trouble. And it is for the Christian, as we experience all of that trouble, as we see that we live amongst the deceit and the lies of the world, It is that very dark and negative thing that fuels our thanksgiving. And perhaps when we feel dull and deadened to giving thanks to God, it's because we've become out of touch with just how dark the world is and how significant a problem sin is. That we need to experience once again what the deceit of the world is and the trouble and jeopardy in which we live and what it then means to be rescued from that. And what God has done on our behalf is the key to thanksgiving, is experiencing and knowing all that trouble and the vulnerability that worship is a joy and necessity because we know what God has done. The third thing that we seek after, though, is right order from God. If you follow with me in verse 5. The psalmist continues, There in Jerusalem, thrones for judgment were set, The thrones of the house of David. This can be a cryptic line, and many people wonder exactly what is being established here. But of course, in the Davidic monarchy, as David came to the throne, he established a system of justice that preserved equity and right order across the people of God. They had a means, a judicial system, in which people would not be taken advantage of. The powerful could not simply do what they wanted. This system has been demonstrated by many different scholars to still hold a tremendous amount of influence even in Western society and culture today. But this was not simply a judicial system of courts and judges. It was also a system that was grounded in God's word and also in the judgments of God. And for us today, as we come to the heavenly Jerusalem, the true city, 
that this Jerusalem pictured here was always only a shadow of. When we come to that heavenly Jerusalem, we do seek after the right ordering of the world. That is, in all the injustice and the evil and the wrongdoing in our world, that we don't take vengeance into our own hands. That rather, we entrust that to God. That we put that in his hands. That he's the one who does all things right. That he knows the truth. He knows the secret things. And that he alone is the one who can sort it out. And so we go to him and we put judgment in his hands. That the throne of judgment is set and established there in the heavenly city. And so we bring our burdens. We bring our griefs. We bring the wrongs. We bring our suffering. And we present it to God and entrust him to be the one who will make it right. And he alone will put things in good order. Sometimes in this life, and sometimes the promise is that the good order will only be restored when our Lord Jesus returns and the creation is scrubbed clean of all the pollution of sin. But this is what we seek after. And so it's appropriate for us to bring the grief and the sorrow of our world and all the injustice and the wrong of it. The fourth thing that we seek after, we see in verses 6 through 9, is that we do seek an audience with God. Verse 6, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We're once again instructed to do something. And then you'll see as the verses unfold, that we're instructed to offer intercession, to make supplication for the prosperity and the health of the church. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. And friends, this is a challenge for us. Because it is a direct confrontation of our prayer lives at many different points. And specifically, it confronts us that our prayer life is to have the concerns that go far beyond our own personal well-being. That, of course, it is legitimate to bring our personal concerns to God. And the Psalms are perhaps the strongest legitimization of that. That we're to bring all of our burdens and concerns. But a prayer life that begins and ends at our own personal burdens and concerns is not a healthy diet of prayer. That we're instructed here, as we gather with the corporate assembly, as we come with God's people to the heavenly city of Zion, as we come with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven, this is where that language comes from in Hebrews chapter 12. As we come with that great company, we pray for the health and the prosperity, the life, the vitality, and the mission of the church. We come to pray for something bigger and broader and more important than our own lives. We're instructed to pray in that way. This summer, I've been reading through the screw tape letters with my two sons and came across this dialogue between the senior devil tempter and the junior apprentice devil tempter. And he instructs them with their new patient. The best thing, wherever it is possible, is to keep the patient from the serious intention of praying altogether. <laughs> Whenever possible, keep them from praying. And friends, this is why we have to be instructed that prayer is not an afterthought. It shouldn't be an afterthought in our meetings. It shouldn't be an afterthought in our gatherings for worship. 
The prayer is one of the means that God communes with us, and we have an audience with him. And we make supplications for the church, for the peace of the people of God, for their prosperity, that the church would enjoy the peace of God, and then in his mission, going forth to the nations, declaring his excellence and his majesty. This is the point. This is the purpose of our prayers. And so we do come to this God, the living God, enthroned in Zion. That's the one we have the privilege of approaching. And as we see all of that great privilege, when we see that he's the one who promises to be a refuge for us, that we can, be, we can return to him and be restored by him in all the different seasons and troubles of life. When we see that he commands us to express thanks, that when we experience our own vulnerability, when we know the, the depth of our own sins, and when we know the weakness of our own bodies, that we are to give thanks to him and rejoice in him. That we're to call on him for the church to prosper and to enjoy health and peace and well-being. As we do all these things, we are looking towards one great final day. Because Sunday by Sunday, as we gather, we are saying that something is going on here. There is more than meets the eye here. Christians have always believed that. That when the people of God assemble and the Spirit of God is present among us, that the veil between heaven and earth grows thin. And that we do join all the saints and angels in heaven around the throne of God. And we are approaching God. And that is a dress rehearsal each week for the great day in which God is enthroned on the earth once again. When he wipes away the tears from our eyes. When he removes death. When he destroys all the presence of sin and he renews the world. The things shaken, removed. But the world renewed and restored in all of its goodness. And it is that great final day that we ultimately look forward to as we pilgrimage to Zion week by week. We're looking forward to the pilgrimage to the heavenly city itself when it comes down from heaven and descends and renews all things. That's the point of weekly worship. Orientation and reorientation. Offering thanks to God. Seeking him as refuge. Calling upon him in prayer. Being renewed by him all along the way. Let's pray. Father, we do confess our own fickleness. We confess our unfaithfulness. That so many times we enter into your presence with a certain type of apathy. But yet, even despite all of that, you are present to bless, to guard, to defend, to be our refuge, to hear us, to be the one who restores justice to the world. And so attune our hearts to give thanks to you and to praise because of all these great benefits, the God you are for us in Jesus Christ. Hear us, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen.